somewhere along the line, I realized that faith is a gift given by God and that it's not given to each of us in the same way. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm so pleased to be speaking to Juliana Borio-Goats. Julie, thank you for coming in and speaking today. Thank you for the invitation. I want to start right off with a question that has to do with your life as a teacher of science and chemistry, which is, do you view science and the pursuit of truth that way as a whole separate thing from the pursuit of truth and faith, or are they related to you in some way? For me, they are very much related. Francis of Assisi, of whom I'm a great fan, used to talk about creation as being a vestige of the footprint of God. And as a scientist, I look at trying to understand how creation came to be, how creation functions, as giving me maybe a special insight into the mind of God and how God works. So for me, they're very intricately tied together. And as you've taught at the university level, have your students sort of picked up on that? I used to teach Physical Science 100 when I was here at Brigham Young University. Physical Science 100 is a general education class taken by most of the non-science major students, and it has as a principal objective to show that faith and science are not totally butting heads, but they offer different perspectives, different ways of coming at truth. I wonder if we could kind of go back to whatever your life faith journey is. Because it is a journey, we're not always in the same place. I wonder if you can sort of talk us through the map of where you began, where you've been, and where you are. Sure. Let me start with what I think is a kind of fundamental underlining point to, to my faith journey. And that was somewhere along the line, I realized that faith is a gift given by God, and that it's not given to each of us in the same way. There is some some gift, but it's not necessarily given in, to us in each the same way. So my Catholic roots are very, very deep. My great-great-grandmother came from Ireland, accompanying her uncle, who was a parish priest, to start an Irish parish in Western Pennsylvania. And on the Italian side, Catholic roots back in Italy to the 16th, 17th century. But at the same time, on my maternal grandmother's side, my great-grandmother, who was Catholic, married a Presbyterian. And that would have been back at the turn of the century where Catholics did not marry outside the faith. Mm. And so it was a very unusual situation for her. My great-grandfather, the night before he passed away, was baptized Catholic on my grandmother's dining room table. And my mother, who was there, said, I'm not really sure he believed in Catholicism, but he really worried about his wife, and he didn't want his wife to worry about his eternal soul, so he, you know, he was baptized. And so I have this sense of that faith is the gift, and our role, part of our role in life is to find out what gifts we've been given and to seek God, to become closer to God in the ways that the gifts that we've been given and the situations we find ourselves in allow us. So... I was born in 1954, and at the time that I was just starting school, first grade, Pope John XXIII had convoked the Second Vatican Council, which, in his words, was a way of an adjournamento, opening the doors. The church had, had been not totally fixed in place since the Protestant Reformation, kind of ossified. So there was a lot of rigidity, and John XXIII recognized that the world had changed 
there was a lot of things going on and that the church needed new ways of looking at it. So for the first four or five years of my Catholic education, I learned from a very structured, it was called the Baltimore Catechism, uh, who made you? God made me. Why did God make you? God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world and the next. And so as you went progress through the grades, you, you, know, you memorized those parts. But then when I was finishing grade school and going into high school, it was at the end of Vatican II, the council and the documents that came out of that, the church in the modern world, the document on um, revelation, scripture, and tradition were coming out. And we spent a lot of time in my Catholic high school and then Catholic college that I went to studying those documents. And they moved me from a what is inappropriate, I think, for a beginner in faith, a structure, a rigidity, a, here, here are the black and white answers, right. to a broader perspective with a nuance, with an understanding that things weren't always as black and white. I definitely call myself a Vatican II Catholic, which for some people is a negative thing, but for me it's a very positive thing. Well, you mentioned being a big fan of Francis of Assisi. I am a big Francis, Francis of Assisi, and I'm a big fan of Pope Francis, the first pope to have been formed in seminary and during his early days as a priest in, in Vatican II. So through your college years and and studying early marriage and and child raising, was that a constant? Interesting. Um, I met my husband. We were both chemistry majors. We had an internship at the American Chemical Society, and we worked in Burlington, Vermont. Steve came from BYU. He was a chemistry major at BYU, and I was coming from a Catholic women's college in western Pennsylvania. We met in Burlington, Vermont. We fell in love probably within the first three weeks uh, of being there, but we realized that it was it was going to be very difficult to bring two really firmly held faith traditions together. And so we dated for three years, picked a graduate school where we could be together um, uh, to see if we could make that work out. You know, we worked out some things that we, we just had to come to grips with that, for example, we both really believed in our traditions and we, uh, and I credit Steve with a lot of this, he's really the wise one in the relationship, to say that we couldn't enter into the marriage with the idea that eventually one of the other of us would convert, and that we'd eventually be happy when that person converted. Somebody would win. Somebody would win. Mm. And so we've never, we have never tried to convert one another. We've had lots of conversations about faith. As our children were growing up, uh, we focused on the areas of faith that we share, various things that we share, uh, and as they became older and um, more discerning, more understood things, we would talk a little bit more about the things that, that we differed in, or if they came with questions, we would, we'd talk about that. When I was in graduate school, I actually attended the institute, the LDS Institute in Ann Arbor, more often than I went to the Catholic Newman Center because the institute had uh, lots of graduate students and they had a wonderful brown bag uh, luncheon once a week. And many of my BYU colleagues and friends were graduate students there at the same time. So I, I think know. food may be an integral food part of may religion, be an integral actually. Part, but, but the discussions were fascinating. 
And the Newman Center was geared more to undergraduates and definitely not to people who were married. And so I would go to Mass every Sunday, but it wasn't where I found community. I found community in the Institute. And because I learned by compare and contrast, I would hear Dill Parkinson or the guy in the religion department, my husband's cousin, we would be discussing questions and I'd hear them say something or Steve would say something, Bill Hamlin was there about faith. And I go, hmm, I'm not sure I believe that. What do I believe? Why do I believe what I believe? And so my faith was growing while I was immersed in an atmosphere of Mormonism. But it wasn't until I came to BYU in 1982 and was in this neighborhood where everyone had all these callings, and I would go to church on Sunday, and I'd think to myself, you know, you really do need to get more involved in in the church itself. So I became involved in doing preparation for liturgy and reading the scriptures at Mass and and doing things. So, So I had a period of time when I really was not actively engaged in practicing my faith other than regular Sunday Mass attendance. You know, I've heard people say if you if you learn another language, that's when you really learn your first mm-hmm. language. It I'm, sounds similar. I think it's a very strong parallel. I'd never thought of that com- that comparison, but I think it's a good one, yeah. People ask me questions. Being here at BYU, uh, having lots of students, I taught for many years a chemistry class that the men chemical engineers would take right after they came back from their missions. And so I'd have many of them want to come and talk to me and share their testimonies. And I considered it a great gift that they were, you know, that they were interested in. in, But I had opportunities to share my faith with them as well. And so I read an article where where you said that you, you let them know you could give, if I remember correctly, the LDS perspective, being married to a Mormon. And being part of the community, but that you would reserve the right to, quote, share your testimony on yeah, the I last would, day of I class. would do that, especially in Physical Science 100. I learned how to teach PS 100 from Jay Balaf, who was provost of the university at the time, but had also been a state president and one of the most faithful, deep, deeply wise people that I've ever had a chance to work with. And I made a point of, okay, Jay, explain to me what Mormons feel about this. How do, what Mormon, is Mormon theology on that? And I would often start the class with, if you'd wanted the Catholic perspective, you'd have gone to Notre Dame. So I'm going to do my very best <laughs> to give you what my understanding is of, of LDS teaching on faith and science issues. But yeah, I will reserve the last day of class. I'll share my testimony with you. So what kinds of things would you share as your witness of what you believe? Well, I would talk about, um, first of all, one of the fundamental differences in in Catholic theology is that we believe that creation happened ex nihilo, out of nothing, that God has existed before time, above time, outside of time, that God does not have a body. He's pure spirit, but omniscient, ever-existing, perfect, those wonderful Greek perfection things, but that when Jesus took on human form, when he chose to come to earth and take on human form that we call the incarnation, that that is is sort of elevates all of matter from the time of the Big Bang Mm. to when Christ took on human form, uh, that that elevation sanctifies matter and creation. And it partly informs why I've why I find the study of science so fascinating because of this glimpse that 
I get into the mind of God? You know, the Greeks had this idea that God was perfection and that the ultimate was perfection. But science tells us that God works both through order and chaos. So the death of a star is a very chaotic uh, event. And yet the energy, when the supernova takes off, enables new matter to be formed. So you get higher elements. And and so chaos is, is an essential part of creation. And then it's an ongoing form. So I talk about that. You know, I had read that your research interests fall under the umbrella of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to mention for our listeners that you have received the highest teaching honors at this university and been invited to present as well as receiving those honors multiple times, in fact. But that study of thermodynamics, uh, energy and heat in chemical systems, to me this is talking a little bit about the chaos. If you Mm -hmm. change the temperature of a particle, the system has to adapt to the new conditions. And from a personal viewpoint, I can't imagine you've had a life without chaos and pressure and heat. (laughs) How do you feel that having a type of faith or being a believer has helped you adapt in that process? Well, for Catholics, the crucifixion, the cross, is a premier symbol for us. You know, we believe that no matter how good a person you are, no one gets through life without some trials and tribulations Mm -hmm. and struggles, and that what the perspective on the crucifixion and the resurrection does for us is to give us a hope— not necessarily an optimism that, oh, yeah, everything's going to be great, but a hope that in the end, the will of God will work out and things will be the way they're supposed to be. And so there have been a number of times um, I had cancer when my daughter was five Mm. and wasn't sure that I was going to make it through. That long-term perspective really has helped me. There are times in which I'm feeling kind of depressed and I have to remind myself that, yeah, you know, you're, you're telling people regularly that suffering can be transformative. So and, and how you respond to it, is, it determines whether it's a good or a bad. And I have to remind myself of that um, from time to time. But that's, that's really kind of my long-term perspective. You must have had some times, or I shouldn't assume, have you had sometimes actually being angry at God? I have not. I, I don't think that I have been angry at God. Um, I have been angry at the institutions that I have participated in, both um, my own faith tradition and other faith traditions, where I sometimes think that the institutions and the way in which the institutions work as institutions have tried to put a stranglehold on what God's really trying to do. And so I don't get mad at God. I get a little bit irritated at them. And I sometimes <laughs> will say to God, you know, come on, can't, you know, can, can we speed things up here? Um, but but I, I, think, I think I've been blessed <laughs> to never put the blame on God. Hmm. What things put you or make you feel that you are in touch with the divine in your life? There are several ways in which I feel I connect with the divine. So I've already mentioned Francis of Assisi, and Francis is, uh, was very much connected with nature. Mm. And so from a, from a young child, I've been interested in unusual things, like even as simple as a four-leaf clover, eagles, birds, uh, seeing things kind of out of the ordinary, rainbows, shooting stars. Uh, and so there are times in which something natural but unusual will happen. And it has happened not generally when I was expecting it, but maybe a little bit after a time. And I say, oh, 
Yeah, okay, there you are, God. For me, a major connection is through the church, the worship service and the Mass. I have been uh, blessed to live in a post-Vatican II world where women are allowed to do some things on the altar. Mm. Uh, and some of the closest experiences I've had have been assisting priests as altar servers and being close to the miracle of the transubstantiation, the consecration. Those are kind of, in the words of Vatican II, that my source and my summit, I am drawn to them, I am fed by them. But then we also have a tradition of, of private prayer. And I've, in the last, oh, 10, 15 years, tried to become more contemplative, taking an Ignatian approach, Ignatius of Loyola, trying to, at the end of the day, I'm very, I, I spend a few minutes just examining the day and reflecting on the good things that have happened, the bad things that have happened, and asking myself, where was God there? Where was the hand of God? And so I think of it in terms of two analogies. Um, you know, astronomers will tell you if you want to look at a dim star, you're better off looking off to the side of it because of the rods rather than looking at it directly. And so I sometimes have the sense that if I really am trying to focus on finding God, I don't find him. But as I move my focus away, there will be some experiences. But there's also what I call the looking in the rearview mirror, that mm. when I look back at the end of the day, and sometimes the, the, the looking back may take me years back, I'll recognize that there was someone who was there when I needed that person to be there. And for me, that's the hand of God. That's you know I've been graced to be able to have people with me at various times when I'm struggling either with health or with faith or with family issues or you know whatever. And so uh, it's a combination of public prayer and contemporary contemplative prayer and trying to occasionally do something good for other people. (laughs) (laughs) Are there questions that you would answer differently now than 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Definitely. Again, my experiences of living here, uh, being here at BYU, my understanding of the importance of the incarnation uh, to Catholics 30 years ago, I could mouth the words, I knew what it meant. But wasn't, it wasn't until I came here and talked to folks for whom the incarnation isn't something that has the same significance to mm-hmm. me. Uh, and I began to realize how it plays out and how we decorate Catholic churches in the music that we sing, in the prayers that we do, the rituals, the what sometimes people will call the bells and smells, um, you know, that those really are tied to the idea that God speaks to us through our senses. I know there are cities or cathedrals or countries that have felt they have a, a patron saint. Do you have something like that in your life? Probably Francis of Assisi would be one. And then there's a Catholic tradition, not so much followed anymore, but of um, naming a child with the name of a saint. Hmm. So my mother had uh, an aunt, a great aunt, actually, who was a member of a religious order of women, and her name was Sister Juliana. And so my mother just really liked the name, and she said, if I ever have a daughter, my first daughter is going to be named Juliana. So I always connected with her. In a special way, I was with a Sicilian friend and going through St. Peter's Basilica. And totally unbeknownst to me, there is a statue of Juliana Falconieri, who is my, my patron saint, off to the side, to the, to the left of the Bernini altar. And 
he had gone off to look at something he wanted to see. And I'm just going around and I'm looking at all the saints because there are two or three saints on every pillar. And I'd kind of gotten saturated. And so I was walking past the Bernini altar and kept on walking. And then all of a sudden I had this sense of turn around and look up. And the inscription is in Latin, and the, the J's are, I think, were Y's or something. And I looked at it first, and I didn't realize what it was saying. And then I realized, oh, this was Juliana. And so for me, that was a spell, you know, it might sound kooky or new age or whatever. But, you know, I had totally walked past it and then just had this sense of I should step back and look. That's kind of cemented my connection with her, that she was looking out for me. So, yeah, so I have a patron. I have two. <laughs> I, think it's, yeah, I think it's really interesting that we have experiences like that where it's kind of left up to us to decide what just happened. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as a scientist, I can't give you a rational explanation for it. And it's certainly within the realm of possibility or probability that I just, you know, cut a twitch in my shoulder and looked up. But my recollection of it is that there was a deep uh, a deep sense of, you know, no a voice so much as, a, as an impression that I should turn around and stop and look back up. And so there it is. And there she was. <laughs> and there she was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, have you been influenced by being a parent in your religious attitudes? Yes, especially as my children have gotten older. Uh, Steve and I, when we were raising the children, and this was one of the things we kind of worked out before we got married, if we ever had children, that we wanted them to learn from Mormons what it meant to be Mormons and from Catholics what it meant to be Catholic. So in their early days, our expectation was that they would participate in both faith traditions so that they would feel a part of a, a member of each one and not just somebody who bopped in every now and then as a visitor and, and right. wasn't accepted. It didn't work out quite as well as we'd hoped because sometimes people in both faith traditions felt it was their responsibility to talk about the mom who was the heathen or the dad who was that Mormon. Um, And so sometimes the children saw the worst instead of the best. But we also made it very clear to them, and here's where this idea of faith is a gift, that mom and dad loved each other dearly and that we could still bring together our very diverse perspectives on religion and faith into a loving relationship and into a family. And so that if at some point they had reached a point where they felt they knew what they were being called to do, then it was not going to be a matter of, oh, you became Catholic, so you love mom better, or you became Mormon, so you love dad better. Mm. Um, And so that's how we raised them, I should say, that it is not something we encourage anybody to do, that we both believe that there is wisdom in our individual faith traditions to marry within the faith. Marriage is hard enough, uh, and if you throw this other wrench into the works, it can really be very difficult. But it is something we felt called to do, and I think we've been blessed and graced with the ability, and again, Steve being the wise one (laughs) and the calm, low-keel person to be able to make it work. Our daughter considers herself to be an atheist now. Our son did an LDS mission in Long Island, Spanish-speaking, New York South, Spanish-speaking. He got there just about right five days before Hurricane Sandy hit. So a significant part of his work was, in those first days, was um, clean-up stuff. But he had a number of experiences along the way that convinced me that 
he was where he was supposed to be. And as he continues here as a student at BYU, he continues to participate in the LDS Church. Um, he is uh, a gay. He has come out, and he very much is trying, striving to live the, the the covenants and to live the tenets of the faith. But it's a struggle for him. It's very difficult. One of I think uh, I'm not sharing anything that he hasn't put on Facebook, or uh, he he's participates in some of the leadership of the groups that are on campus or, or off campus to try to help. He was. Um, suicidal at one point in high school, and we didn't really understand. And one of his seminary teachers gave him something to read by Chieko Kosaki, about, uh, who, who, of course, had herself suffered some persecution. Yes. And who uh, some of us would have to maybe pick as one of our patron saints. One of your patron saints, yes. I had the, the blessing of meeting her on several occasions, and J.D. brought this article home uh, in which he's talking about her realization that Christ had gone through the suffering and he could understand and you could put your suffering off with him and he and and that actually gave JD a perspective that enabled him to to want to live and so the night before he went on his mission we were driving around the lake and he said mom i want you to understand i'm not going to convert catholics like you if i find somebody like you has a faith i'm going to be happy for them and i'm not going to try to convert them but i know that there are people who are out there who are struggling and who are suffering and i think my experiences may can maybe help them understand I wouldn't have had that perspective 30 years ago. Mm. I, I wouldn't have had that perspective. I also wouldn't have, I think, the perspective that connects in the same way, that faith is a gift. And I've come to the conclusion that for some people, the gift is not to see a personal God, but yet to have a commitment to things other than themselves. So my daughter has had a career in public service, and she is passionately committed to making other people's lives better. She's been involved in politics. She's been involved in some NGOs, and she's just passionately committed, first of all, to raising her two little beautiful boys to be the best people they can be, but also with an idea that her life is not just her own and that she's called, she has a, a, a commitment to do things for other people where she can. You know, it's interesting, a kind of ecumenicalism from one viewpoint, you could say, well, if we bring everybody together, everything gets watered down. But there's another kind of, I guess, ecumenicalism where you allow somebody to stay where they are and you stay where you are religiously, whether it's a denomination or personal beliefs, and yet still interact in a way that you can celebrate that they believe as well. I know you've been involved a little bit, at least, in some of that work in the community. And I think that's a very useful perspective. Well, I happened to attend a retreat this weekend on Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk who died in the 50s and was just beginning to be involved in this ecumenical movement. And he said basically that same thing, that you can't participate in ecumenical work if you're not grounded in your own faith tradition. So you have to understand what your own faith tradition believes and, and you subscribe to it. But as you participate with others, as you learn what their beliefs are, you allow them to have their own beliefs, and you see where things are different, and you see where things are the same, and you work from there. And I think that's there's an analogy a friend of mine likes to use when he's talking about God. He has a, a crystal sphere that's got lots of different facets on it. And so as he rotates it around in the light, you see different aspects of the colors. You see different colors of uh, uh, kind of like a prism. 
And for me, that's kind of how God is, that God is too great for our limited human brains to understand him or to get it all right. So as you rotate the sphere, you see the different colors of light. And as you move around through the world's faith traditions, you find that they have very much in common, but there are also some things that they choose to emphasize or de-emphasize. I think there's wisdom in that. As Catholics, we talk about unity and diversity. And I think that that's, you know, I for me, Catholicism is where truth is. But I'm not willing to say that there aren't other ways of coming to truth and for that God hasn't revealed truth to people in other ways. What should I have asked you that I don't know to ask? Actually, you've done a really good job. I guess one way, one thing that you haven't asked is how does my faith, my belief, affect my life in other ways other than the things that we've talked about. Mm. So I taught at BYU for 30-some years and then had an opportunity through the Catholic Diocese of Salt Lake was doing offering of a four-year program to become a lay ecclesial minister. So that's a fancy word for being for a person who is trained to do a variety of pastoral things within the constraints of what Catholic women, Catholic lay people are allowed to do. And BYU allowed me to do a service mission. I went to John Tanner, who was the vice president at the time, and said, I'd like to do a service mission. And he says, kind of smile and says, well, what are you planning on doing? And the parish was building a new church at the time. So I, I had the opportunity to be the parish's liaison with the architects and the contractors. And that kind of opened the door for me to begin to move more and more over to the parish. And so I'm now there working full-time as a pastoral coordinator, and I have an opportunity to do things I never did as a chemist. So I work with homeless people, and I work with people who are hungry and some folks who are drug addicts, and I work with members of various ethnic communities, and I'm constantly stretching having to stretch to remember the, you know, the Beatitudes and the Matthew 25, the, you know, when did you see me hungry and you didn't feed me, you know, kind of that, that sort of thing. And so getting more and more involved in doing that on a daily basis has, I think, opened me to be a better person more broadly. And I'm grateful for that opportunity. Been speaking with Juliana Borio-Goats, Julie, it's an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Well, thank you. you. It's been, been a pleasure for me, a privilege, actually a privilege for me to do this. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll explore some of the intriguing ideas presented by our guest, Dr. Juliana Borio-Goats, including a short audio field trip into the past with the writings of the Trappist monk Thomas Merton and a discussion with a panel of listeners on the concept of faith as a gift. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. In the first half of the show, we heard an interview with Dr. Juliana Borio-Goats. Twice she mentioned the idea that faith is a gift, something given by God, and not given to each of us in the same way. She also mentioned the Trappist monk and author Thomas Merton. His experience with faith was similar. When Thomas Merton was still a very young man, he wrote about the gift, the thing from outside oneself that can only come from God. The soul of man, left to its own natural level, is a potentially lucid crystal left in darkness. It's perfect in its own nature, but lacks something that it can only receive from outside and above itself. 
When the light shines in it, it becomes, in a manner, transformed into light and seems to lose its nature in the splendor of a higher nature, the nature of the light that is in it. It was while he was living in New York City and professing himself to be an atheist that he felt that light, or felt something, pulling him forward. Sometime in August, I finally answered an impulsion that had been working on me for a long time and made up my mind to go to Mass for the first time in my life. The first time in my life. I had lived for several years on the continent. I had been to Rome. I had been in and out of a thousand Catholic cathedrals and churches. And yet, I have never heard a Mass. Go to Mass! Go to Mass! It was something quite new and strange, this voice that seemed to prompt me. This firm, growing interior conviction of what I needed to do. And when I gave into it, it carried me forward serenely and with purposeful direction. It was a clean church with big plain windows and white columns and pilasters and a well-lighted simple sanctuary. What a revelation it was to discover so many ordinary people in a place together more conscious of God than of one another. Not there to show off their hats or their clothes, but to pray, or at least to fulfill a religious obligation, not a human one. So we pray, our Father, who art in It was a young priest, perhaps not much over 33 years old. He didn't consider himself an intellectual, nor did anyone else. And his sermon, which was simple enough, didn't belie it. It was not long, but to me it was very interesting to hear this young man. For behind those words you felt the full force, not only of scripture, but of centuries of continuous and consistent tradition, a vital tradition. What was he saying? That Christ was the Son of God. That in him, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God had assumed a human nature, a human body and soul, and had taken flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and that this man, whom men called the Christ, was God. And his works were the works of God, his acts were the acts of God. He loved us, God, and walked among us. God, and died for us on the cross. If you believed it, you would receive light to grasp it, to understand it in some measure. If you didn't believe it, you would never understand. It would never be anything but scandal or folly. And no one can believe these things merely by wanting to, of his own volition, unless he received grace, an actual light, and impulsion of the mind and will from God. He cannot even make an act of living faith. It's God who gives us faith, and no one cometh to Christ unless the Father draweth him. The sermon was what I most needed to hear that day. When the Mass was over, I, who was a blind and deaf and dumb pagan, as weak and dirty as anything that ever came out of the darkness of Imperial Rome or Corinth or Ephesus, wasn't able to understand anything else. Now I walked leisurely down Broadway in the sun, and my eyes looked about me at a new world. I couldn't understand what it was that had happened to make me so happy, why I was so much at peace, so content with life. All I know is that I walked in a new world. Even the ugly buildings of Columbia were transfigured in it, and everywhere was peace in these streets designed for violence and noise. Sitting outside the gloomy little child's restaurant at 111th Street, behind the dirty boxed bushes, and eating breakfast, 
was like sitting in the Elysian fields. A few excerpts from the conversion of Thomas Merton and the gift of faith from his book Selected Silence, read by Solomon Reynolds. What do you think about faith? We invited a few folks to listen to the interview and share their thoughts. Madeline Dresden is from South Carolina, recently graduated with an MFA in creative writing and is an adjunct instructor for the BYU Writing Department. Madeline Gunnell is studying news media at BYU. She's one of our student assistant producers, and her husband, Hayden Gunnell, also joins us. Hayden is from Idaho, majoring in accounting. Once they heard Juliana's interview, they were eager to jump right in. I love one of her big themes that she talks about a lot is faith being a gift, which I think is such an interesting perspective in terms of how everybody approaches faith. I think that's one of the common ideas for most religious communities and people outside of religious communities have other feelings like beliefs or things that they think to. But to think of it as a gift um, is something I found really fascinating that she said. I've tried to embody that myself, but sometimes it can be hard to remember that when we're thinking about that coming from so many perspectives and we feel like we're creating this faith. She felt like it was coming to her. It also made me wonder, think back to my childhood. You know, when was the first moment I had anything similar to faith? And weirdly enough, I actually thought of like Santa Claus where, you know, you have, you kind of, <laughs> right. be- uh-huh. you believe in something and you're told by grownups that this is true, that there is a man in the North Pole who brings you presents. And one, and then it made me wonder at what point did that faith deteriorate? Um, and for me, it was, well, why doesn't, why don't all kids get presents then? Why does his compassion and charity, why does it have limitations based on geography or whatnot? So it, it really made me think back through my life and that gift of faith and wondering at what points did it lead to something awesome, you know, what, when, when it was encouraging and when it helped me get through hard times and at what points could it be manipulated. So I think faith is a gift and I really appreciated her perspective. I like the Santa Claus um, <laughs> right. analogy. It makes me laugh because she said something similar to that. You, you talked about you were told Santa Claus exists. It's a wonderful thing to believe in. Um, And she talks about going through that stage for those first couple of years of her learning, you know, really rigorous. This is just the way you are. And you go through this period of faith. And I love how she said, that's okay. Sometimes it's okay to have things taught to you. Um, It's okay to have things presented to you because you have to have some sort of basis to go off of. And then, like you said, you know, those can generate into amazing things. She talks about her transformative experience where faith opened up from this rigid idea into broad Um, more conceptual, it opened up uh, for her. And I think that's one of the interesting things that gift does is it starts um, maybe more rigid for a lot of people, but it grows, it explodes into lots of different experiences that can impact the way that faith interacts with us. What I thought was interesting, you mentioned kind of the broadening of her faith was um, that now that she recognizes that faith is a gift, she's also given that gift to others. Um, I mean, she lives what we're doing in this conversation right now. She lives that every day. Um, She mentioned that her husband's a Mormon and she's a Catholic. And um, as her two children were growing up, or at least the two that she mentioned, they were kind of told, you're welcome to appreciate and just experience both of our faiths. And then it's up to you to decide and just experience both, um, whatever part 
or whatever faith you choose to be a part of. Or um, it was it was just interesting to see that she gave that gift to her children as well. I think that analogy of faith of a gift is so powerful for us because of, and not to be redundant on this concept, but because of the fact that she appreciates it so much. And I love her comment about reserving or the interviewer talks about her right, her reserved right to share her testimony back, even though she was at a place where lots of other people um, had different beliefs from her. And I think there's something really beautiful about that, about that whole concept of sharing faiths, allowing people to believe what they have. And understanding that that can impact your beliefs, you can still hold strong to who you are, but that that can have a great effect and that you want to share that gift. She clearly treasured that, which is, you know, something inspirational for all people who believe in anything. Yeah, and I really liked how she was saying she tried to package things, I suppose, in in a, a Mormon perspective for this Mormon studentship so to speak, in classes and how she said, you know, if you wanted a Catholic perspective, you would have gone to Notre Dame. But I, I, I actually made me a little sad because I wished that she would maybe bring more of that Catholic perspective to her classroom. I don't know. What do you guys think? But I think as a student at BYU at one point, I think that would have been really great to have her share like like this radio program to hear her thoughts on these sorts of things. I agree. I think that um, I think it would have been valuable um, to her students to hear that throughout the learning process, to have that integration. I think she herself is um, an example of how valuable that is. I love how she talked about, you know, her belief in the incarnation and how that was just something that she learned growing up. You know, you go to mass, you 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 read um, different scriptures, you understand the liturgy and all that stuff, but that it meant so much to her when she was exposed to people who didn't understand its relevance to her. When we have thoughts or feelings or beliefs and things, when we are exposed to people who don't have those same types of beliefs or that don't have the same meaning, it really causes introspection in us to understand this is why it's important to me. I mean, I love the phrase she used. She specifically said, you know, she'd attend classes um, that had different religious beliefs than her. But what it caused her to do is to say, I don't necessarily believe that. What do I believe? Is this something I believe? Is this not? And it sounds like almost some of the more verifying parts of her faith or as she broadened that faith were the times where she was able to expose it to to other people, to other opinions. And I think that's a really cool part of interfaith reaction or interfaith interaction, um, being able to understand that your beliefs have some special meaning for you. And that's wonderful. And that can be very unique for everybody. Like she said, faith is unique. There's a, a lot to coming to your own understanding of things and, and and having faith in something, it doesn't mean that you've never had your ideas challenged, at least in my experience, my faith in something or in God and whatnot in relationships only grows when I've had to examine it myself under different lenses by letting it, letting other people look at it and, and share their thoughts. I think it only gets stronger that way when you're able to expose it to other ideas and when you are exposed to other ideas and other thoughts. It only makes your faith stronger or at least helps you to decide which of these are productive pieces of faith and which of these maybe need to be challenged a little more so that you can hone um, hone your skills and and take in she mentioned seeking out what gifts we have been given and I don't think we can do that if we don't involve other people with different ideas and different perspectives 
Yeah, I mean, I love Francis of Assisi. I'm, I'm not necessarily Catholic, but I, I, when she talked about him being her patron saint, I, I mean, I love his teachings, his works. You, you sing the song, and it's an altered from his original words, but all creatures of our God and King, which is, goes across a lot of denominations, is a very important hymn. Um, the principles, though, you could apply to almost anybody. I mean, we can all go out in nature and feel a reverence of, of the awe of nature, even somebody who doesn't necessarily believe in a higher power per se. Um, there's an impression there that I think is moving. And so we, we talk about these different forms of faith and these different ideas. Um, but I think we're, we're well served to understand the different ways other people approach because sometimes it opens our eyes to new ways. And for example, at BYU, I learned about Francis of Assisi more, St. Francis of Assisi more thoroughly than I ever had before. Um, you know, growing up, that wasn't part of my education, but that opened a new door for me to understand a way to really worship God, to understand God, to reverence God. Um, and that only happened because I opened up to that opportunity to learn something that comes from a different perspective. That reminds me of what she said um, about how God has revealed truth in other ways besides her own faith um, of Catholicism. And I think, um, you know, at a university, um, we have the opportunity as students to experience discovering truth in other ways besides our religion, even if we're at a religious university like BYU. Um, And I've noticed, like she said, um, how science and religion are intricately tied together. I totally agree with her on that, um, that you kind of get to know the mind of God the more that you study um, things that aren't necessarily obviously connected to God. You get to find those obvious connections. I really like especially how she was talking about the creation and how that was insight into God's mind. And that made me wonder, and I wonder what you guys think. Um, when, in what ways do you think that understanding creation or studying creation will help you see who God really is? Well, I think she she gave a great example, but um, not to just take and plagiarize her words, but to, <laughs> right. to, to learn from her. Um, and maybe she vocalized it better than I would be able to, but I, I feel the same way. She talks about for example, God with order and chaos and creation and how sometimes chaos feels like it's the opposite of what we believe God is. Um, but as we learn about creation, understand uh, chaos's part in science um, and that sometimes things that seem um, random, chaotic, and sometimes even we label them as negative have positive implications. They're a part of scientific growth. They're a part of discovery. They're a part of creation. And that helps us understand a little bit about who God is and what methods he uses, teaches us a little bit about him. I think, I think that science gives us those insights because if, if you're religious or if you're not religious, whatever you believe in as a higher level of life beyond your own, um, it tells you a little bit about the things around you. Um, I mean, I don't know. Have you guys had experiences with that type of uh, impression? Well, it just made me think of one time when I was babysitting. So this kid was like two years old. And he, of course, decided that when we go outside, he has to water the plants, even though, you know, they're bushes that are, you know, sprinklers. He doesn't need to water them. But I was going to endorse this this behavior of his. So it's we, fun. It is fun, right? And you know what? I didn't have to watch him, you know, draw on the walls. So I was like, here you go. Here's a, here's a pail of water. Go ahead and water the plants. And then he 
a few minutes later, you know, you turn your back and you look around. He's digging in the dirt and there's ants everywhere. So I come up to him and I'm like, okay, you can't stay away from the ants. They're going to bite you. You know, they're gonna, you don't, I don't want you to get hurt. And then he just looked at me and he said, who made the ants? And I said, well, God made the ants. And he said, I don't like God. And that was... I didn't know what to do at that point. How do you explain this idea of chaos and creation and on all these difficult concepts to a two-year-old? And thankfully, I was only babysitting, so that was up to his parents to teach him. But th- this radio segment reminded me of that moment and, and because it made me have to take a step back and think, right. you know, what do I believe about why God created ants, you know, and, the, you know, how, how, how the circle of life works and why it should be that way, why there are things that can hurt us and how those actually contribute. Like you were saying that some, some of these things, we posit them as in a negative light, but that's that theory of chaos and creation is really fascinating to me. And that insight into how and why behind God's decisions was, it's a really fascinating thing to think about and something to try to navigate. But we're we're already, you know, a, an example of something she talked about. And this is what I love about this concept of being able to, for us to sit down and talk about that and listen to someone and engage. She talks about that moment where she says, I teach so often or share so often to other people that, you know, trials are good. They're transformative. They help people. And yet I have to remind myself, I mean, that, that's so human. <laughs> we all want to believe that trials are transformative and good for us. We want to believe that there's a reason that these awful mosquitoes, especially in this area, I mean, oh, gosh, down by yeah. the lake and everything, but <laughs> ants and other things, those are really small, though. How about more um, impactful things such as her, her son's situation? It was really difficult for him. Or I've had a history of, you know, working around mental health struggles and things. Those things don't seem fair. And there's always this battle inside us to understand that idea that these are transformative experiences and it's easy to tell other people, but when it hits you, it's not that easy. And, you know, but we all, I think in a large degree, a lot of people believe that, that, that there should be some good in general, that life should hopefully have some good purpose. And I think that's a lot of what religion is about or belief is finding that. And I love how she looked to the crucifixion for that. I love her statement about that, you know, that looking at the crucifixion as as a sign that even, even the best most perfect person is still had to face persecution and trials. So ants being a microcosm for a lot of the hurtful things in the world, but I love how she looks at the crucifixion as a, a sign of hope for uh, better things to come and a reason for a lot of these things as you were saying, a way of, you know, transforming us and making us better. Well, and we we all have our symbols of hope, I think. Everybody has a different perspective. She's just a great example of somebody who who really took what she had, which was Catholicism and her belief in Jesus Christ, and exemplified that. But but down to more simple practices, she talks about personal prayer as a way for her to meditate and think about. And you listen to this wonderful woman who um, – I mean, everything is, I've been blessed to have this, or we were graced with this and different things, and how she thinks about those blessings and those experiences. I was just listening to a show just today about a guy who talks about the benefit of Buddhist meditation in achieving the exact same purpose, in understanding the exact same thing, um, that that is healthy for us to, to look on experiences and transform them to good, because that's contrary to what is our initial impression of things around us in life that that sometimes it takes some introspection to achieve 
uh, perspective that allows us to be hopeful. And I love how she started that whole conversation with this is this is us searching for truth. And she kind of that kind of book ended the whole conversation. I really do think that for me, that has been my experience with religion is whatever is leading me towards what I consider truth. Just one last thing. I love that she said that um, to kind of seek that other truth and to strengthen her own faith, she had to be deeply rooted in what she just personally believed. And that's what allows her to um, interact with the other truth that's there. Uh, One part of her interview that really struck me and made me want to ask you guys about it was this idea that we are each given some sort of unique gift from God, and it's kind of our life's journey to figure out what that gift might be. Um, what did you guys think of, of that? Have you felt that that's true? That you, Do you feel like you've ever uncovered something about yourself and you felt like it was a gift from God that helped you to help other people or gave you some extra insight? What did you guys think of that? I had experiences. So we think about gifts as really happy things. But when I was growing up, I had um, some run-ins with some particularly difficult challenges, um, with some particular mental illness issues that were that were difficult for me. Um, and at first, I didn't think of them as being particularly helpful. They they made life difficult. They were awful. But now, honestly, one of the gifts that I love most is the gift of having experienced that. And I think that came through me being able to pray and understand and work through different things. And as I did that, I I started to see it as a gift, Um, something that was, you know, something that was valuable to me and something I can use and pass along to other people. But I never would have seen it as that before. Did it feel maybe like a a gift of circumstance, as in because these things happened to you, you were you had this ability to empathize maybe and help other people? Or did you feel like it was something that was, was always within you? I, I, gift of experience. I, I, and I, I think it's God gives us some things, you know, God doesn't give us some things, some things are innate. I think that one was an experience that grew that I don't think I would have had otherwise um, that really helped me, um, for example, and helped my faith. It was the gift that I was searching for. She also talked a little bit about anger. What did the two of you make of that part of her discussion? So I loved what she said um, about being angry at God because she said that she hasn't ever been angry at God. Rather, she's been angry at um, the flawed sort of institutions that kind of skew the way that we um, do things or practice our faith. And um, I'm wondering what you guys think about that. Have you, have either of you ever been angry at God? That's a question that maybe we're like, maybe I shouldn't answer that on air, but I do. (laughs) Um, Yes, I would say that I I have been angry at God, but I I do think that as I've gotten older, that has turned into more of the kind of anger that she has, this sort of, uh, I guess, impatience with the institutions. Um, There were definitely instances growing up where I wondered why, you know, that that question that we all ask, why God, why me? You know, if you've seen Les Mis, that's like the first 20 minutes of the musical is why me? And it's a very relatable experience. First 20 experience. minutes of my day when I have to wake up really, Great. really early. <laughs> me, if I don't get breakfast, you know, those sorts of things. Why me? Uh, it's a, it's, and not to make it sound trite because sometimes, you know, it really is right. because of harrowing experiences or trauma. Um, I do think that it is through faith that I have gotten through religion 
that I've been able to let go of pain and find healing and come closer. And for me, uh, stories of Christ have really helped, have been really healing, especially considering he was a person who went through quite, quite a lot of, of difficulties. Right. But I think even you talk about the grandeur of Christ, but sometimes those trivial things do help us see. I think the, the, the meaning out of those, I mean, for example, I, being really connected with God all the time or a belief can be a good thing, but it also means it's in every part of your life. So when you're driving to work and you're really, really late and you're like, please, God, let all the stoplights be green for me. And you're hoping that you can get through all of those and they all turn red. And you're like, why? What was that? Where are you? But you remember, it's just a stoplight. <laughs> and I think she talks about, she's got a great handle on that, that sometimes in life things are just the way they are. It's not God against us. It's just that that's the way life is. And I love how she said, I am blessed to have not been angry at God. I do think that's a blessing to be able to see things in perspective and say, okay, this isn't that big of a deal. Or if it is a really big deal to be able to say, this has some meaning, but it's not something that's imposed towards me as a bad thing. I have to be angry with God. This is just a thing. It's life. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our panel, also to Reed Wolfley and Marcus Smith for engineering support, and special thanks to Dr. Juliana Borio-Goats for her thoughtfulness and generosity in sharing with us. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief, the sacred and divine. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation, and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out to us anytime by emailing ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find this and all past programs archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join with us again soon, right here in Good Faith.